Welcome, listeners, to another episode of FF Plus, a spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, discussion, and more. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me for this episode is my man, Kales Davis. Hola, everybody. Well, tonight we have quite a few films to go through, and so we will just get right to it. Some new releases to talk about and also something new to VOD. First up is Earwig and the Witch. This is an animated film starring the voice talents of Taylor Page Henderson, Vanessa Marshall, Richard E. Grant, Dan Stevens, and singer-songwriter Casey Musgraves. It is directed by Goro Miyazaki, son of Hayao Miyazaki, and written by Kiko Niwa and Imi Gunji. What's it about? A headstrong orphan discovers a world of spells and potions while living with a selfish witch. Okay, so, Kales, this is the first attempt at 3D computer-generated animation by Studio Ghibli, led by, as I mentioned, Goro Miyazaki, son of Hayao Miyazaki. He has previously directed a couple of films, Tales from Earthsea, I believe, is one of them. It was an adaptation of a novel that kind of got a so-so response. And then a historical film, a drama called From Up on Poppy Hill, which actually got pretty decent response from that one. I've read some articles about how he was actually not into animation for the longest time. Like, he wasn't all on board with taking over for his dad and following in his footsteps. He actually did some landscaping-type work uh, in the past, and so I just wanted to kind of throw that out there before we get to this. So before we get to talking about what we didn't like, uh, what did you like about Earwig and the Witch, if anything? The one thing I admired that's a cons- consistent quality among Studio Ghibli films is their use of music. And this one was one and the same. Um, it has a more happy-go-lucky kind of feel to it. Still has some of that um, earthy, spacey vibes that other Studio Ghibli films have. The visuals for for it to be 3D CG, uh, it's a little bit weird because I'm so used to the hand-drawn animation that Studio Ghibli does, and it's always marvelous and beautiful. With this film, I can see what they were trying to do with the 3D CG animation, and it's not for me, but I can say that it's done well from a visual standpoint. I didn't see too many blurbs in there. The leading girl, you know, our leading character, she's kind of funny, kind of charismatic at times. Outside of that, um, I can't point to anything else I can find in this film that's good. Well, that's fair. Um, you know, I would agree that the music is decent. It's always a you know strong point of Studio Ghibli films. The story is not necessarily anything new. Uh, it's kind of your typical fantasy type you know, fable-ish story that Ghibli likes to tell. It's got a lot of Kiki's Delivery Service feels like in there. And it's sweet, and it has its, you know, emotional beats that you expect, and they tend to work. It has some endearing moments to it, for sure. And it's not very long, per se, so I would consider that a strength of this particular film. I you know, I I like the fact that it's going to sound weird when I get to my dislikes that I said this, but I like the fact that they were willing to give it a shot. Or I would say I don't begrudge them wanting to see what they could do 
with a different style of animation. That makes sense. It's kind of like, you know, a, a center in basketball who wants to step out to the three-point line and shoot some shots, you know? Like, it's not always going to go well, but he's going to hit one, and he's going to get inside his head that he can do that on a regular basis. And that's not how sports work. That's not how game work, you know? Like, percentage is the thing that matters. Just because you did it once out of 50 doesn't mean you should be out there shooting the shot. And I feel like Ghibli stepped out to the three-point line and wanted to see if they could hit this and then just continually didn't <laughs> over and over and over. So I really don't have anything else much good to say. I would agree that the voice performances are solid. So there's that. I'm just going to transition into my dislikes. Listen, to me, this is a stain on the Studio Ghibli name. And... When I say I don't begrudge them for wanting to try their hand at that 3D animation, what I do begrudge them is for seeing how obviously bad it is and not taking the steps to correct that. Whether that is not bringing in talent from outside the studio in order to make it the best possible product or whether it was just scrapping it all together and saying, you know what, we're not good at this. We're going to do something that we're really good at. Something went wrong here. And in my opinion, it is so bad animation. And I agree with you, it's not technically bad in the sense that there's not like blocks, you know, or, or pixelated characters. It looks like a plastic kid animated film that's straight to DVD to me. And so the problem for me, Killess, was that with that and a pretty generic story that again has its moments, I think if you took this story and you transported it into a 2D hand-drawn animation world, I would have a much different response to the story. But because I was so distracted by this animation and I was so annoyed by it that I just, I couldn't enjoy this. And on top of that, I felt like it was pandering not only in the animation, but in the story somewhat to Western audiences. Going with this rock concert, rock, um, you know, singer, songwriter, mother, story, and witches. And it just felt very Western to me. It didn't feel Japanese. And, and I, it gave me the sense that they were like, this to me is like, this is a Japanese studio trying to make an American picture that they think is going to rival a Disney and a Pixar and having no understanding of what that is, which to be fair is probably what would happen if someone even, you know, like, you know, a Disney just decided we're going to go do the same thing that Studio Ghibli does. It's not going to turn out the same way, right? They're just, they're not going to be able to have that history and they don't have the, the talent, the people to do that in that same way. And so it was a total miss for me, a major misfire. It actively made me upset that it exists. And I really am hoping that it will just quietly release, go mostly unnoticed and disappear from people's memory that it is even part of Studio Ghibli canon. And I hope that Goro Miyazaki just goes back to landscaping and stops trying to follow in his father's footsteps because I don't see how he could ever measure up or even at this point 
be serviceable. So I just just step out, sir. Let the studio continue doing what it does best and, you know, watch from the outside and support them emotionally or something. That's my take. This is a case where the brand name is the major appeal of the film. It's not the film that's going to draw it's not the film that's going to draw you to come and watch it. It's the brand name. And I was fooled because when I saw Studio Ghibli come up, I was like, okay, I even wrote a post about it on Facebook. Hey, this is going to be another great Studio Ghibli film. Boy, was I wrong. Um, this film feels rushed. It feels like the story needed a couple, a lot of more, a lot more drafts to really flesh out some meaning. I'm, I'm supposed to get some thematic relevance to this story, like other Studio Ghibli films, and I didn't get it here. The story is paper thin. Um, it really takes place in only one location, which is this house where this girl ends up at. And in the begin, the beginning scene starts good. We, I'm feeling like we're going to get like a kind of a thriller where we're going to be focused on this woman trying to get this girl back and there's witchcraft involved, but instead we're just stuck in this one house and this girl's trying to keep out of the, um, eyes of the bad mother witch and the weird reclusive, um, Mandrake was his name, the other bad witch. And, I mean, it's cool. There's some whimsical moments. I mean, most kids will like it for what it does, but there's nothing, there's no things I can really latch on to. And also, addition to the animation that you were talking about, yes, technically speaking, like I said before, the animation is good from that aspect, but everything just felt dark about this film. It felt like the colors didn't, they didn't shine. They weren't blazing out in front of you like, like other films in this, in these, um, catalogs do. It felt kind of muddy at points, especially when they went outside. It, it's not particularly eye-gazing. I mean, the, the good thing is that it ends well, but then the sad thing is that it ends well, because it's, it needed a lot more backbone. It needed a lot more development. The characters are very forgettable. Uh, the villain doesn't do anything for me. Just nothing in this film just feels like a Studio Ghibli film. It feels like a starter animation company doing their first film and trying to work out some kinks. But this, it feels like it's riding high on the name itself and not the quality of the product. Yep. Yep. That's exactly. I agree completely with that. So I guess it's obvious, but are you feeling it? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. The big no, no big no, fat no, 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 no for me as well. <laughs> this one will be available in select theaters on February the 3rd. It will be streaming on HBO Max on February the 5th. It will be on digital video on demand on March 23rd, and then on Blu-ray and DVD combo pack on April the 6th, should you wish to seek it out. And I know that many of you are going to ignore the things that Coles and I are saying, and you're going to say, I need to see it for myself because it can't possibly be that bad, guys. And then you're going to come to social media and you're going to say, Aaron and Coles, wow, you guys were right. And I could have saved two hours of my life, but I didn't. And we're going to say, ha ha, we told you so. <laughs> Moving on to film number dos. This movie is called Bliss. It stars Owen Wilson, Salma Hayek, and Nesta Cooper. It is directed and written by Mike Cahill. What's it about? Bliss is a mind-bending love story following Greg, who, after recently being divorced and then fired, meets the mysterious Isabel, a woman living on the streets and convinced that the polluted, broken world around them is nothing but a computer simulation. Doubtful at first, Greg eventually discovers there may be some truth to Isabel's wild conspiracy. Coles, what did you like about this one? 
that Selma Hayek and Owen Wilson were in it. Um, the whole time I was just watching them, I was thinking about better films that they were in, and I was kind of transplanting that experience onto this. Because other than that, there's nothing else I can say about this film. It was a experience devoid of any enjoyment, any compelling subject matter, and it's clearly failing in the footsteps of other better films that deal with this concept. So, yeah. What did I like about this? Not a whole lot either. Cahill's past work is very similar. It's grounded sci-fi stories that try to have compelling twists and turns. And there are twists and turns in this. It is a simulation theory story, which I tend to enjoy quite a bit in general. And so I was intrigued by it. And I would say I liked that. It had me curious for a while as to how it was going to use that type of story. And it has a cute Bill Nye appearance that I thought was kind of fun and surprising that he showed up. That was interesting. The concept here is not terrible. So I think that the concept is okay. And yeah, I mean, that's really all I got to. Um, so what, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I knew these first two were going to be really rough, but let's just get through it. So what did you not like about Bliss? Like you said, the concept is great. We're dealing with a movie that deals with real life versus simulation. You know, whether the events that's going on on screen is this real life or this is a fantasy, is the main character we're following, are they going crazy? Could this be a type of alternate dimension? I mean, that's fine and dandy, but what this film does is that it doesn't even answer the simple questions to its story. The story is kind of very incoherent. The timeline is very jumbled. In the beginning of the film, there's a moment where you see a person ends up killing some somebody. And then, like, hours later, then there is said on TV that they are, the police have done their investigation. There's no foul play involved, and it's within a day. But then, later on, you get to understand that it happened two weeks ago, but you... You never get a sense of where the story is going with its movement. Um, I understand that it wants to be like the Matrix. It wants to be like certain certain films that are dealing with simulation, but it really doesn't leave much to entertain with the concept. It feels very worn out, generic, especially towards the end when it gets to its ultimate message about appreciating life and don't chase bliss. Like you should, you should be forgiving of what life can throw at you, the unpredictable, the good and bad. It, it's great in design, but the way the film uses it, you don't really get to see the the cosmic of it until the end, where it's all thrown in together. It feels very rushed. The performances outside of Owen Selma, Owen and Selma has some bad moments in this, but I can see that they were trying their hardest to salvage what they could. But outside of them, there's no interesting characters I'm out of words. There's so there's so much wrong with this film that I literally tried to erase it from my mind as soon as I watched it today. Uh, Don't blame you. Don't blame you. Well, you know, I agree. I didn't like it at all either. And I wouldn't call Owen Wilson's performance bad. But what I will say is that it was incredibly difficult for me to take Owen Wilson at all seriously in this type of dramatic role. He is not funny in the slightest. and. I just don't buy it at all. And 
what's worse is I thought Selma Hayek was bad. And, and I will say bad in the role in the sense that, and I will blame mostly the script, but she is acting out a character that is unhinged for most of the runtime and just kind of crazy and scattered and all over the place. And it did not work for me at all. It was not pleasant to watch. It was not entertaining. It's not interesting. They're supposed to have some sort of chemistry between them at one point, And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. There is nothing there. Um, so the romance fell completely flat and was dull. There's no connection between them. There are these two simultaneous stories going on and they don't really come together in a way that I find interesting at all. Uh, you know, obviously, like you said, it's trying to be something like the matrix, but an utter fail at doing something new with that kind of concept and it takes this big turn in the middle which is expected for a movie of this type and it has this major tonal change and there is a bunch of stuff that they try to explain away about the future but it just doesn't work there's there's nothing about like you said these characters that connects you to them and makes you care about the characters and so whatever they're trying to achieve in their life and whatever the reality is around them didn't actually matter to me one bit. What mattered to me was figuring out what was real and what was not real, but not because I wanted to know for the character's sake. And that's where this fails on such a huge level to me. I want to know about the matrix, for example, because I need to, to see what's going to happen to those characters because their lives are in the balance of real world versus matrix world. I didn't care at all what happened to Owen Wilson and Selma Hayek, not one little bit. And so it made the mystery kind of a moot point for me. And I, it was just a completely dull experience for me. I didn't enjoy it at all. I was just actually anxious for it to get over. And did you also wonder in the story when they go to that second half and they're in this other world and then they have these fake characters there with them, did you understand what the basis of them being there was? Because I never, they never explained why they were there. <laughs> no, I don't understand the movie. I don't. I don't understand fully what was going on. Um, so it wasn't explained in a way that, you know, made sense to me. And again, I will point that to being partially due to the fact that I don't care about the characters. If I had cared enough about the characters, maybe I would have paid more attention and maybe it would have made a little more sense, but it didn't matter to me at all. What was real or what was not real and what happened to them. I just, I was just done. I just wanted them to get off my screen, um, which is not good at all for a movie. So, you know, it sounds like a good concept. You've got two actors that, you know, have quality performances in them and a director who has made some pretty interesting sci-fi stuff before, but no, not this one, folks. Um, I was not feeling it. Kales, sounds like you were not either. Strongly not feeling it. It's, it's sus, because these are the frustrating movies. The movies where you can see that there's promise in this concept, but then it just doesn't work out. Nope, it sure does not. This one is going to be available on Amazon Prime Video, streaming on February the 5th, should you desire to check it out. Next up is a short film, Apollo 11 Quarantine. This is directed by Todd Douglas Miller. 
What's it about? Summer 1969. The astronauts of Apollo 11 successfully land and walk on the moon. The crew will now quarantine for 21 days following contact with lunar material. The clock starts when the hatch is closed on the lunar surface. Three days later, they return to Earth. This is a follow-up to Apollo 11, the acclaimed documentary of a couple of years ago. Um, it was my favorite documentary of that year. It remains one of the best IMAX experiences I've ever had in my entire life. It is an incredible documentary. And essentially, this is a follow-up to what we see at the end of that documentary, because it is archival footage of the Apollo 11 mission, and it sort of ends once they get to the rescue from sea and back onto the boat. And then at that point, it cuts off. So this is showing us what the astronauts went through uh, a little bit longer after that, up until the point they're able to go home. What did you like about this one? What I like is the quality, first and foremost. Um, the archival footage looks just like it was made yesterday, crystal clear. I love seeing the aftermath of historical events. You know, we often see these films that just focus on the lead up to the historical event and then the event itself, but we never really see the aftermath. And I like that we at least got a glimpse of what these guys had to go through coming back onto Earth and just being subjected to quarantine, which is funny because we're all in quarantine right now due to a... um due to a different reason. And it's another reminder of the great human achievement that it was to walk on the moon. The whole time I was thinking about it, I was just admiring these guys, you know, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. And I know their pilot's name was Michael. I can't remember his last name, but you get to see these guys coming back to earth as heroes, um, doing something that most other humans will never get a chance to do. And I liked that towards the end, Buzz Aldrin, he talks about that, I'll get to say something that no one else can say. We walked on the moon, but it's bigger than me. You know, this is something that mankind should be proud of. And it's something that they should take and expire to be more and to be able to tackle on any problems we have on Earth right now. And also a great thing it is that it reminded me that I need to go and do a timely rewatch for Damien Chazelle's First Man, one of my favorite films from 2018. So I'm glad you said that because... It triggered the exact same response in me, and largely because of the final scene in First Man, where we see Neil Armstrong come back, and he is behind glass and interacting with his wife uh, when he is returned to Earth after the mission. And so that's what we are going through, that process, in this little short film. I will agree. The archival footage is incredible. Like with its predecessor, it is incredibly interesting to, get to see these detailed pieces of history it's like a real treat just the way that they were able to get this footage remastered in a way that is this beautiful and then expertly edit it it looks like it could have been filmed today to be honest if it wasn't for like the aesthetic of the time period with costumes and the way that the world looks like the the roads around buildings and such you could feasibly believe that it was just made today and filmed so that is an achievement in and of itself and it's just another kind of piggyback off of what we saw in apollo 11 and it's really intriguing like you said there's that tie-in right now with us having lived in quarantine for a while and just getting to see what that looks like for astronauts that come back from a mission like this and then compare it to our modern day circumstances and how we've handled COVID, there are quite a few similarities, like right down to having to celebrate birthdays away from family members or, you know, 
through a pane of glass and such and so forth. So that was intriguing as well. And ultimately, it's just a quick hitter. It shows you a little bit of what they went through, kind of adds to that film and that story uh, and is a, a compelling, interesting experience while you're watching it. Moving into my dislikes, I will say this. I don't really know that I dislike these things per se. I don't, I don't have any real, you know, negative feelings toward the film per se, but it lacks the narrative propulsion of Apollo 11 mission itself and that story. In a, and it just is kind of there. It's about 30 minutes long. It just goes, it meanders. There's not really big events that are happening that are making you get excited about what the next thing is. You're just watching this footage. And so honestly, it wasn't that exciting to watch. So while it was sort of interesting to see, I didn't like get a ton of enjoyment. It's much, much slower. Not a lot happens. And frankly, to me, it felt completely unnecessary in the sense that it either should have been part of Apollo 11 but again, it would have slowed down just tremendously the end of that film, which would have taken away from the propulsive nature of that story and how you feel when they're coming back down and landing on Earth successfully alive, right? Like that emotionally is what gets you going and your blood going. So I understand why it's not there, but it would have been like a great extra on the 4K copy that you take home or something like that. I, I don't feel like in and of itself it has a ton of value. Honestly, it was cool. Like it almost feels like something he could have just thrown up on his YouTube page and be like, Oh yeah, here's some extra footage I had. This was kind of neat. I, it doesn't feel like a short film, I guess is what I'm going, where I'm going with that. It doesn't feel like it has a start, middle and end. It's just, here's some footage. There you go. And you know, and, and watch it. <laughs> and, and it, and it starts and it ends and that's it. Uh, so that was kind of my experience with it. Like, I enjoyed it. I guess I appreciated it more than I enjoyed it. And I just thought it was like, okay. I mean, it's really well made, but I didn't see it being anything special. What about you? Did you have any dislikes? You hit it around the head. It's a special features extra. Uh, I mean, it's like if you had a Apollo 11 movie that was made and then it comes out in 4K and then this is like a special feature. It's like, hey, see what the real astronauts were doing right after the mission. And you only really appreciate this film because you already know about the Apollo 11 mission. And like you, if you've seen the documentary, then you're taking that with you and you're just applying it to this. So the historical significance is what makes this film. I mean, if you can really call it a film, it's mostly a snapshot of images. Very mundane, nothing too tantalizing, nothing you can really go back and really rewatch and and be excited for. But it does its job as being just a documentation of these guys and what they did afterwards. So I would say that it's not really a negative, but I will now go see the Apollo 11 documentary and be able to bridge those together once I see that. And maybe it might become more heightened for me. But other than that, it's a normal short film, one and done. Interesting. I, I'm bummed that you haven't seen it. And I hope that you get a chance to see that soon because it is incredible. And it's too bad you didn't get to see it in a theater because it is, it really is like, it is an experience that you can't quite have at home. Uh, but when you see it, you'll know what I'm saying. 
Uh, and you'll also, I think you'll see the difference in how it both fits, but I mean, you'll see how it fits and, and flows really well, but you'll also see just from a movement and a pacing and an energy side of things, it's completely the opposite of that documentary. And so, yeah, uh, am I feeling it? Yes, I'm feeling it. I think if you sh- I think it's worth seeing because it is real footage that is interesting and we should always embrace history like this. It's supposedly making a push for best documentary short at the Oscars. I have a feeling it'll probably get nominated. Technically speaking, it's impossible to compete with this because it is an achievement unlike anything other, just like the documentary was. I can't imagine it winning anything just because there's really nothing to it, like I stated. But yeah, I'm I'm feeling it, and I think people should check it out, but I don't think it's worth going to pay to see. I think, like I said, if you can find it on YouTube later, you know, it's definitely worth spending 30 minutes of your time on. What about you? I'm feeling it for a, a one-time viewing. Just try to get it for free. Don't pay any money for this. Only because it's 23 minutes, and that's not enough to really equate the value of what you pay the price of renting it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This will be available on video on demand on February the 5th. I don't know any sort of pricing structure for it, so that's why we're saying what we're saying about it. Once you've figured that out, you can make a better decision on whether or not it is worth it for you. Well, the last new film we're going to talk about, we saved what we consider the best for the last, and that is Malcolm and Marie the upcoming Oscar contender from Netflix stars Zendaya and John David Washington. It is directed and written by Sam Levinson. What's it about? A filmmaker and his girlfriend return home following a celebratory movie premiere, and he awaits what is sure to be imminent critical and financial success. The evening suddenly takes a turn as revelations about their relationships begin to surface, testing the strength of their love. All right, man. We've both been really looking forward to this. What did you end up liking about it? Sam Levinson writes from the heart. I've noticed whenever I've seen a film of his or even the HBO TV series Euphoria, he writes from the heart. He writes from a place that feels like he's experienced the things that he's making these characters go through. And through Malcolm and Marie, we see this Hollywood couple in they're having these discussions, you know, not just about their romantic relationship, but about the Hollywood industry itself. We get remarks about celebrity culture, um, film criticism. Film criticism seems to be the biggest target in this film. Feels like Levison is writing with um, an agenda to push as far as how critics see films. And I felt, me and you felt attacked right within the first 10 minutes because uh, we make our name on judging films. But he makes a good point. There is a scene where John Day Washington is talking, is going on a, a high rant, which he's doing the most of the film, and he does it very well. He's talking about how it's very easy for people to label cinema something, putting it in a box and putting all these technical and colloquial terms onto it and then calling it good and bad. But most people need to see it as art. It's something that, it's something that you can see and interpret from your heart. And I felt that. Because our podcast and the discussion group we have on Facebook, we mostly are talking about films that we feel from the heart. Not talking about the craftsmanship so much, but how does it make us feel emotionally? And Malcolm, that's his whole that's his whole ride. He's 
a black filmmaker and he has to deal with not only the white gays in Hollywood, but he also has to deal with living up to expectation. He talks about that these critics are calling me the next Spike Lee, the next Barry Jenkins, and even that can feel kind of limiting and kind of disrespectful. What if he's trying to be the first him? And it does a very good job of just getting into the meat of touching on real life issues, but it doesn't feel patronizing. It doesn't feel preachy in a sense. It feels like it's just wanting to start a discussion. On the flip side of that, we have a romantic film. We have a film where this couple, you can tell that they love each other, but they're dealing with some very toxic issues in their relationship. And there's a lot of resentment, a lot of secrets. And you're seeing John Day Washington as a dyer. They're just going at it, this whole film, like verbal sparring. And their performances are fantastic. Zendaya, she is definitely on my front runner list to be nominated for this film. She has impressed me in everything she's done up to this point, and she just keeps getting better and better. I love the way she's able to convey her emotions with her face. I love her body language. I love the way that she is able to deliver these lines with such passion and heart. And John David Washington, I really still don't understand the criticism he gets. People accuse him of just living off his daddy's name, but this guy is a very good actor. He's a He's a great actor. And he kills in his role. He has to do a lot. He has to sell most of these these long rants that Levinson's writing on the page. He has to sell most of it. And he does it in a very convincing manner. This is a very energetic performance, almost more action oriented than Tenet, than Tenet felt at certain points. Just as the way he's able to have to extend everything to push out his frustration with the industry and push out his frustration with how Marie sees him and. How he's going to, and does he feel talented enough? Is he really talented or is he copying other people? There's a lot of interpersonal issues going on, not only in just each of the characters within themselves, but going on between them and their relationship. And this film is a big reckoning for all of that. It, another thing I have to say is that I'm a sucker for films now that go for black and white aesthetics. And this film looks gorgeous in the black and white. It's very simple but it's elegant and stylish and it's done with a little bit of movement. We're only spending all of our time in one house, but Sam does a good job of moving the camera around, making the place feel bigger than what it is and getting outside and really having a sense of location and blocking. I love the music as well. Bonus points for ending the movie on an outcast song. One of my favorite outcast songs, liberation. Amazing. Awesome. I agree with you about the house, especially uh, because of how he is able to take this one confined space and then make it into a whole bunch of other littler, smaller confined spaces. And then stepping outside into this big open pasture like yard in order to, you know, bring us out of the house to give us room to breathe, just like the characters need room to breathe at times. So it's expertly shot in that regard. I would agree. I love the aesthetic as well. I'm a sucker for black and white films that are modern setting because we don't get those a lot. Sometimes we'll get black and white, but they're usually in a somewhat of a historical setting. But this is just today's day and age in LA and it works really nice. I think especially with the fancy style of the house and the richness, because these are definitely wealthy people who are living the Hollywood life. Um, I agree completely about John David Washington. I will Sing his praises forever and ever. I did it on our Tenet podcast that we just did uh, last weekend as well. And you're so right. Like on that one, in that film, he's acting his butt off, but he's doing it in such a sly, smooth manner without a lot of exaggeration 
This is a completely different performance. He is loud and rambunctious and angry at times. It actually reminds me a lot more of some of the scenes that his character in the show Ballers has to pull off, one of his first bigger roles and where I really fell in love with him, actually. And I, he's one of my favorite working actors today. I will eat up anything and everything this guy does. I think he is absolutely perfect. He, he's just phenomenal. Um, and Zendaya as well. She's incredible. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. She's a future nominee, whether it ends up being for this film or another film, she is going to be an Oscar conversation for years and years to come. She's that good. So is John David Washington. Hopefully the Academy can get that whole, you know, following your dad's footsteps thing away and respect him and acknowledge him for what he's doing on his own. But I think both of them are generational, you know, talents within the best that we have going right now. And it shows when you have these two people and that's all there is. It's just, I love this kind of film. You just got two people and then they have to carry it, right? It, it is all based on their back and forth. So the acting is absolute fire. Um, like you said, cinematography, the aesthetic is sumptuous. The use of music is phenomenal. The storyline and the meat and the potatoes of what's going on. Yeah, it's really intriguing the way that they are critiquing film criticism at times. There's, there's one scene specifically that I laughed out loud about where he wants to go see this first new review that has come out. And he can't get to it because it's behind a $1.99 paywall. And he has to go pay $1.99 in order to get the review from the site. And so there's like some commentary on that. And, and I think it's intriguing because the concepts that we're playing with here are, you know, frustrated at film critics because he doesn't want critics to try and discern what he's saying and what his politics are from his movie. Like you said, he wants people to feel his film, which of course I'm going to immediately grab onto like you do. And he doesn't think that everything needs to be spelled out for audiences, which is what critics do. But there's an acknowledgement too of the importance of critics as well. So I don't think Levinson is unfair or necessarily unbiased here. And I think I actually was actively making sure that at the end of the film, I didn't try to project onto Levinson what his politics for this film were, because that's the point of the movie. Like the movie is telling me not to do that as a critic. So if the first thing I do is go to the movie and say, well, Levinson's trying to say this about critics, I am 100% proving the point of the movie. If that's the point of the movie. And it gets into this real weird, like meta thing. So I wanted to sit back and I do think it's fairly balanced. You know, it highlights some of the ego that we assume about filmmakers. They can be real asses, frankly. And it also highlights some of the hypocrisies, but it simultaneously humanizes the people in the industry and shows us like they have feelings and they care what you say about them. And they have lives that are outside of just what's going on, what we see on screen and what we see of them in you know, magazines at the grocery store stand and on the TV red carpet and stuff. And so they both acknowledge that they're playing dress up, but they also have legitimate feelings that get hurt often. And so it really does have this incredibly compelling back and forth about the film industry for people that are 
following it closely and, and intrigued by that. I think, you know, it's potentially off-putting maybe even for people that don't care about the film industry. Some of this movie might not really land because that's really all it's about. Um, yes, the marital, not marital. Yeah, they're married. The marital issues. Is it his girlfriend or is it his wife? I feel like they're married. I think they're married. I don't know. It says girlfriend that's, in this. That's his girlfriend. Okay. His girlfriend. They're not married yet, but they are living together. So yeah, the relationship issues are akin to, you know, people are going to compare this to marriage story, um, because of the way that the arguments are happening. It's really nothing like marriage story in the exactness of what they're dealing with. But it's important that couples are honest with each other. It's important that couples don't have secrets and that couples listen to each other and care about each other's feelings. And those are the moments that we get from this. You know, there's a great scene where Zendaya, after part of, it's toward the middle after a big fight, and she says, can I ask you a question? And you promise to answer without making me feel like shit. And I just went, oh, like that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had that question posed to me before in, you know, some semblance of those words. And it's scary because the reason you say that to someone that that you love is because you know that their answer probably is going to actually make you feel like that. And it's an issue that you have to work through. And we see them work through that in this, the, the ugly, the violent and, you know, them at their best, too, caring about each other and stuff. So it is, I think, a really exceptional film that is not always the most pleasant thing to watch, but is absolutely interesting and worth it. My dislikes, I didn't have a ton. As good as John David Washington is, it almost becomes a negative at times because his character Malcolm is so insufferable for most of this movie. Like he grows into a person that is just hard to like at times. And that bothers me. But the big, big, big thing, or, and also it's got a lot of yelling. There's, there is a lot of yelling matches for the runtime of this film. So there's not necessarily a lot of just calm dialogue and arguing. It's screaming at each other. And that can kind of wear you down a little bit when you're watching it. The big one for me is just, they should have used fictional critics. They name drop in the first five minutes two specific film critic sites. And the problem with doing that, I think, is that it can shift the focus away from taking the message seriously and instead makes us start wondering, in our special line of work, like, makes us wonder, okay, which colleague is he going after? Who is he trying to poke at? What review is he trying to get revenge for? First thing I did is I went to Google and like started looking up the specific outlets to find what those critics said about this film because I wanted to know if they were going to address it. And of course they did because they felt like they had to, which is a whole other can of worms that sort of, I think, almost creates this cyclical thing with this film where it almost starts proving itself and and eating itself. It's like that Ouroboros, right? Like it, you're creating the same problem that you want to go away by addressing it in this manner. And so I think that, you know, treating it a little more fictionally would have been a better route, but I really don't have a ton of negative to say about this. Is there anything that you didn't like? For me, it goes to the story itself. 
I feel that unless you are a person who's well versed in that critic space and you read a lot about the Hollywood industry, I don't see how John David Washington's rants are going to be your cup of tea. I think that most people are going to be expecting coming into this expecting a full romance film, especially by the way you look at the poster, but their expectations might be shifted. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that on my end, but I can see that being a problem for other people. And also the thing about, I can understand Sam's, his gusto, his messages. I can understand he has a right, you know, to speak on what he's speaking on through these characters, but at times it does feel petty. You know, especially with name dropping the critics and some and some of the attacks on the critics that I felt were a little bit off base, you know, um, especially the aspect of the way critics write. You know, it. I mean, yes, there are times where a person can use hyperbold or they can be very, very kind of high scholarly in their criticisms and whatnot. But when you reach to a point of where you're insulting somebody based on their writing and also about the way that they may have written about your film in the past it comes off as a little bit kind of, uh, you're kind of reaching for the the low blows. But other than that, I don't really have too many complaints. Actually, matter of fact, this film has actually grown on me, actually, I've seen since I've seen it last Friday night. And I think I might have been just a little bit low on my rating. I might have to push it up a little bit after a rewatch, just because it's been stuck on my mind a lot. Um, I don't find too much to hate about this film at all. It's a very good, too great film and a lot of people are going to appreciate it especially if you are um into following film in the film industry so malcolm would want to know are you feeling it <laughs> i'm strongly feeling it yeah me too me too absolutely strongly feeling it as well i know our colleague uh, don shanahan from every movie has a lesson has it at five stars he was blown away by it and says it's going to be his front runner for the rest of this year of course for you and I, it's a 2020 film based on Seattle Film Critics Society awards cycle. Um, so we will be able to vote for it here when we do our awards in the upcoming week and a half or two. So that'll be fun. But yeah, definitely feeling this one. It will be available streaming on Netflix on February the 5th. So check it out. Last but not least, was able to have the opportunity to get an advanced copy of Do the Right Things new 4k blu-ray digital combo pack and took a opportunity to check it out again i haven't watched it in a while and it feels appropriate with it being the first couple days of black history month i think that it was probably planned that way to come out right now and it makes a lot of sense the movie itself i'm not going to go into detail here i mean it is as timely as ever which is both incredible and also incredibly sad that we're still dealing with the exact same issues that we were when this was made. Um, it's a masterpiece. I will say that as loudly as I can. I know that Coles would agree with me. So you need to see the film. That's not even in question. So if you haven't seen it, it should be high on your list, especially if you're interested in seeking out black films for this month as a way of honoring those in the industry who are people of color. This 4K transfer is gorgeous. It is absolutely pristine, beautiful, could not believe how good it looked, Coles. Um, I normally don't think that about older films when they get the 4K treatment, because, you know, sometimes it's like, I don't know, it's a shiny glossiness over them, but it doesn't really change things. 
But I think it's a lot, a lot of it is because Do the Right Thing is filmed outside in the summer. So there's sunlight. Um, it's a colorful film. The outfits that the costume, Ruth Carter did the costumes. I actually learned that when I was doing the special features. I didn't realize she'd been knocking costume work out of the park for that freaking long because Ruth Carter is an icon in the industry. I believe she won an Oscar for Black Panther. If I'm not mistaken. Um, but she is constantly being nominated and unsurprisingly so, but the costumes in this one are of the era. And so they're incredibly boisterous and colorful and they speak to the personalities of the people. And so the 4k just was absolutely a thing of beauty in my opinion. Um, and definitely something people should seek out, uh, comes with the digital 4k copy, which is always a plus bonus features. I was both Impressed and let down. So the only new bonus feature, to my knowledge, is a brief introduction from Spike Lee. Everything else, I think, has already existed in some form or fashion on previous releases or on the Criterion edition of this film. But it puts everything together into one package. So there are bonus features that you may have found on different discs previously, but they're all here. So it has two making-of documentaries. One is the original, like, 69-ish minute long one, um, and I actually watched it today, and I gotta tell you, it is a must-see documentary. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, and I love making of documentaries. It is incredibly different than anything you will watch. It is not a highly produced making of documentary. It is hard to explain, even. It's just more like, like somebody who's following around Spike Lee with a handheld video camera and they weren't even paying attention to it being there. And we get to see all sorts of aspects of the production, uh, how the film sets were constructed. And really we get a look at the people of the block in New York where this film was made. What's really special about it is they didn't go and make a Hollywood set. They actually just cleaned up a block and he used it, and they threw block parties for the people who live there. They used the people who live there as extras, and watching them interact, man, it, it was, it's incredible. I just can't say enough about it. Lots of interviews in this making of documentary. I think it is outstanding and a must-see for any fan of this film. There's an additional, like, 30-minute, 39-ish, I got nine in my head, so one of these two documentaries ends in a nine in the minutes. I don't know which one, but it's a 30-minute one from the 20th anniversary, so it's updated, and it's when Spike was interviewing the film, or was showing the film at the Lincoln Center for its 20th anniversary, and he sits down with a whole bunch of cast members and crew members, and them telling these stories, it's actually a lot of the same information that we get from Spike's 20th anniversary commentary, which I also listened to. Uh, so it's not new information. A lot of the information that you'll get in the various documentary special features on this tends to be some overlap. But what's cool about the 20th anniversary documentary version with the interviews is that some of the stories that Spike tells on the commentary from his perspective you then get to hear the same story, but from the perspective of the person that was involved in it. And it adds a little bit of flavor to it and maybe changes it up sometimes. So it's definitely worth seeing as well. And then there's the original commentary for the film that is also on this disc. And I would say like a dozen deleted scenes. I mean, it's packed full of stuff. So it may not all be new, 
but it is all worth seeking out and I highly recommend it. It is going to be available on February the 2nd. So when this podcast comes out, you should be able to buy it right now. Again, that's the 4K Ultra HD combo pack with Blu-ray and with digital code for Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee's Magnum Opus. Go buy it. So I have a question for you, Aaron, because I have the Criterion of Do the Right Thing. So would you say, would this be worth replacing the Criterion or just keeping the Criterion because there's not that much difference? I think it's probably not a must-buy for people with the Criterion if the Criterion is a 4K transfer, and I think that it is. I'm pretty sure that the difference is that the Criterion doesn't have the two 20th anniversary documentary pieces, which is a, well, it's a documentary, the 30 minute interview one with Spike, and then the commentary with Spike by himself. I think those are the two things that the Criterion is missing. It has the original doc, which is the one I'm raving about, and it has the original commentary, which is Spike and a whole bunch of other people. So I think big, big, big fans would benefit from having this, but I don't necessarily think it's a must buy for people that have Criterion. I mean, you're likely to be able to catch this 20th anniversary documentary of interviews eventually on YouTube somewhere, I would assume. So probably not, but for anybody that doesn't own it, I mean, just go out and like pause the podcast before I even say goodbye and just go purchase it right now. Well, that's it. That's all for us this time on FF+. Plus. Um, we know we went a little long on this episode, but we had a lot of films to get through. We hope you found something that piqued your interest, and we would love to hear what you think when you see the films discussed. So hit us up on Twitter at Feelin' Film and at Black Nerd Magic, or join the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group. There's a link in the show notes today. We'll be back soon. Until then, keep feeling film. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.